everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to Osteobytes. My name is Christina Iptoma, and I am mom to Osteo Angel Dillon and Director of Scientific Programs at MIB Agents. And today on Osteobytes, we are talking with Dr. Claudia Benevente about UHRF1 as a therapeutic vulnerability in osteosarcoma. Thanks so much, Dr. Benevente, for joining us on Osteobytes today. And we are thrilled to have you. And thank you to our panelists, Vicki and Walker, for joining us today. Both Vicki and Walker are Osteo Warriors, and they are also respectively the president and VP of our MIB Agents Senior Advisory Board this year. A little bit more about our guest today. Dr. Claudia Benevente studied molecular biotechnology engineering at Universidad de Chile, where her interest in pursuing cancer research first started. And to further her studies, she came to the U.S. to pursue a doctoral degree in cancer biology at the University of Arizona as a Fulbright Scholar. She then moved on as a postdoctoral fellow to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, where she became familiar with childhood solid tumors. Dr. Benevente is currently an associate professor at the Department Departments of Pharmaceutical Sciences and Developmental and Cell Biology, and she's a member of the Chow Family Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of California, Irvine, which, by the way, I just recently learned their mascot is an anteater. Uh, Dr. Benevente's research focuses on understanding how pediatric tumors form to design new ways to treat them. Her research aims to understand how genes are normally controlled in developing tissues and how epigenetic processes are perturbed to facilitate cancers to arise. This information guides her in the development of new therapies. Welcome, Dr. Benevente, and welcome everyone to joining us today. And everyone, please feel free to add any questions you have for Dr. Benevente throughout the talk to the Q&A, and we'll make sure we ask those. Um, and before we get started, we have a couple reminders um, about Factor. Our Factor conference um, registration is now open. It's June 22nd to 24th in Atlanta. And there's really something for everyone. We'll have um, scientific sessions. We have a wellness chat for our families. We also have a Warrior HQ that is free to um, warriors and siblings 18 and under. Um, some of the panels that we have this year are biomarkers for risk stratification, preclinical models in osteosarcoma, comparative oncology, local control, immunotherapies, and molecularly targeted therapies. And this year, something new, we have um, a few smaller breakout discussion groups. We have three, um, and the topics are researcher's best friend, can dogs expedite bench to bedside for pediatric patients? Um, also a discussion group on leveraging computational biology to accelerate discovery in osteosarcoma. And then um, our third group, Unleashing the Power, Patients with Osteosarcoma Who Enable Research. Um, so some really great um, opportunities to have kind of a smaller group discussion. We also have a limited number of Factor Travel Awards that are sponsored by our MIB Agents Family Funds. Um, and so these are awards up to $2,000 to cover registration and travel expenses to Factor. Special consideration is given to young investigators and attendees from outside the U.S., but any research scientist or clinician is eligible. So please do consider applying. The deadline to apply is next Friday, April 7th. And I'd like to thank the sponsor of this episode, the Osteosarcoma Institute, OSI. Um, they're a nonprofit organization led by osteosarcoma experts from top U.S. cancer centers who together are concentrating on the cure for osteosarcoma. The mission of the OSI is to dramatically increase treatment options and survival rates in osteosarcoma patients through identifying and funding the most promising and breakthrough osteosarcoma clinical trials and science. And in addition to advancing research, OSI also provides a free resource called OSI Connect for osteosarcoma patients. Their osteosarcoma experts can discuss available treatments, possible side effects, and provide helpful advice for getting the most out of your visits with your treating physician. This resource is available in English and Spanish and aims to help patients and families find answers to their questions. So thank you so much, OSI, for sponsoring this episode. Um, Vicki, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yep. Hi, everyone. My name is Vicki Foy, and I'm the president of the Junior Advisory Board this year. Uh, I'm an Austria warrior who finished treatment in May of last year. So it's almost coming up to the one-year mark, which is kind of exciting. But on to you, Walker. Hi, my name is Walker. I'm the vice president of the junior advisory board, and I finished treatment, I guess it was in spring of 2019, uh, and haven't had anything since then. And then 
Dr. Benavente, you can take it from there. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the invitation uh, to participate again. I have participated in the factor meeting a few years back, and that was fantastic. I think it's a great opportunity for families to participate there. Today, I'm going to share what we've been up to in terms of our work. And so, yeah, I'll be talking about particular our findings on Eutroph uh, 1 and its potential as a therapeutic target in the treatment of ulcer sarcoma. And this audience is no stranger to Sysarcar, but I do want to emphasize, uh, basically, if you look at the survival um, rates of Sysarcar, uh, it really explicitly shows that we have this pressing clinical need to understand the factors that are responsible for metastasis in Sysarcar in order to facilitate the development of new therapeutics as uh, metastasis is the main driver of the poor uh, rates of survival in, in patients affected with this disease. And osteosarcoma tumors are highly heterogeneous and present what we typically refer as genomic instability. Uh, so a lot of mutations and a lot of chromosomal arrangements. Uh, however, several studies that have done whole genome sequencing have identified recurrent mutations uh, present in a lot of uh, the sarcoma tumors. Uh, nearly all uh, ulcer sarcomas present mutations in the P53 tumor suppressor gene. Uh, and there are several other mutations that occur at lesser frequencies, but quite uh, uh, frequent. And I just want to bring your attention to this uh, tumor, another tumor suppressor gene called RV1, or retinoblastoma susceptibility gene. Uh, that's frequently associated uh, with increased uh, metastatic uh, presence uh, in poor clinical outcomes in patients with osteosarcoma. And I have been studying RB, the RB1 gene for the past 15 years in the context of a completely different uh, childhood cancer called retinoblastoma, in which the vast majority uh, of them present with mutations in RB1. And through the study of RB1 and how, and uh, in, in the pathways that RB1 controls uh, to aid in the retinoblastoma tumor formation, uh, is that we identified um, the, the target that we, we were going to be talking about today, UTRF1. Uh, and we have evidence pointing out that UTRF1 is an interesting drugable driver downstream of RB1. And this includes osteosarcoma. Um, so why did this use for Sorry, can I ask yeah. you a question back on that last slide? So uh -huh, sure. of, of those mutations, do you find that they tend to occur in, 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 in groupings kind of like if you have a TP53 mutation, are you likely to have an RB1? Like do they, do some of them partner or go together? I guess is one question. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, so they're not mutually exclusive. Um, uh, P53, I mean, for sure the example. Because there are 95% of patients uh, present with P53 mutations, quite often you you would get uh, others. Uh, so this is sort of like the requirement, absolute requirement for a sister college to form. Uh, but you will get P53 and RV1 mutations. Uh, um, MDM2 tends not to co-present with P53 because they're sort of like targeting the same pathway. But yeah, you can have several of these mutations happening at the same time. Um, so you can start on appreciating the complexity that then it comes to um, treating osteosarcomas because uh, it's not the same to have this mutation, that mutation, having all mutations. And so the therapeutic opportunities really de depend on which gene are driving, what gene mutations are driving uh, tumor genesis. Um, so I hope that that addresses yeah. your question. Yeah. And just a basic question about RB1, because it, it is, it stands for retinoblastoma, which I think is so interesting because I haven't really like met another gene that's like named after the, the, the disease that it was at the point. Yeah, but it's present in lots of cancers, right? I mean, it, it can be a driver in other cancers. I was just curious, why is it called the retinoblastoma? So, yeah, so this, this, this is the very first tumor suppressor gene that we've identified. Um, and it's, you know, I think that these also emphasize the importance of understanding, you know, one of the problems that we have with osteosarcoma is that very few, I mean, fortunately, very few uh, um, patients are afflicted with the disease. They're rare diseases. Um, 
but not because they're infrequent means that they're less important to be studied. Uh, retinoblastoma is even less frequent than osteosarcoma. But through our study of retinoblastoma, we have identified and learned a lot about retinoblastoma susceptibility gene RB1 as a tumor suppressor. Uh, and so the same way, there are many things that we have learned from the study of osteosarcoma that are extrapolated, you know, can be extrapolated into other cancers. Um, so this tumor suppressor, the reason why it's frequently mutated in a lot of different cancers, RB1, uh, and, you know, sort of what led me to start studying osteosarcoma is patients with heterotary mutations in the RB1 that survive retinoblastoma quite frequently go on and develop osteosarcoma in their teenage years. And then they're at high risk of developing other cancers through the rest of their lives. And that is because the RB1 gene is a critical regulator of cell cycle. Uh, and one of the main characteristics of cancer is that they have lost their ability to control cell division. Uh, so every single cancer in one way or another, either through the mutation, direct mutation of RB1 or through other mechanisms, it needs to lose control of the RB pathway in order to those cells that now to be continually proliferating. So that's also true for things like P53. P53 as a guardian of the genome. I probably heard about this uh, a lot of times because it's frequently hidden as a sarcoma as a tumor suppressor. It's critical to control uh, cell death. And so you have to, uh, so to P53 quite often is uh, mutated in, in order to allow cancer cells to survive. Uh, and if you don't see mutations of P53 quite often, what you see is amplification of things that regulate the P53 pathway, like MDM2 or MDMX. So, uh, so they're common denominators across all cancers, and this is why you see frequent recurrency of gene, particular tumor suppressor genes, um, present in, in several different types of cancer. Thank you. Is that good. Okay. So. So what is the ZHRF1 uh, protein? I'm not going to touch too much uh, on the, you know, the scientific side of things, but um, in normal cell, so ZHRF1 is, is a protein classified as a ring finger E3 ubiquitin ligase. Uh, and what it main, its main role in normal cells is to maintain DNA methylation um, and the formation of heterochromatin while the cell is undergoing DNA replication. Basically, the cells have a memory to keep and that and remember what 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 their identity was. And neutrof one, any genes that are permanently shut off, neutrof one is the cell dividing, uh, passes on that memory of the genes that need to maintain to be in an off position. So it it has been speculated in cancer as to why would high levels of neutrof one be present. And one can, in, we can observe several different things and you, we can speculate and you have high levels of a protein that is not regulating turning off of genes, that maybe if you have a very high levels, now it would go beyond its normal duty of maintaining the off genes into now starting to turn off things that shouldn't be off. And if it's turning off tumor suppressors, the genes that in their normal function is to prevent tumors from forming, but that may lead to uh, a disease state. Um, and so there's a lot of roles of, of, of this protein, including uh, functions in DNA damage uh, repair uh, in the P53 dependent pathway, uh, and as well as regulating um, cell division through uh, binding to RB1. So now you start seeing say, so some containers with RB1 and DTRF1, but in particular, what I want to emphasize is length of RB and neutrof one uh, being twofold. One is that we identified neutrof one as a protein that is directly regulated by the RB pathway, and so you can see. So if, if RB will normally be working to repress the expression of neutrof one, and you would only want neutrof one to be in uh, be in expressed while the cell is dividing, so that um, chromatin can get uh, inherited. So the epigenetic uh, aspect of the cell can be also in here passed down to, uh, to the daughter cell. Well, if you lose RB or you 
uh, inactivate the RB pathway through mechanisms that high-purpose relate RB, then you'll see an increased level of uTRF1. Now, what is also being described is that uTRF1 itself can also directly interact with RB and participate in some of the regulatory functions that RB has in the cell in terms of uh, silencing repeats and committing to sulfate uh, lineages, uh, uh, setting up the chromatin structure uh, and DNA repair. Uh, so the RB pathway is both directly regulating the levels of uTROP1 and then uTROP1 is interacting with RB uh, to preserve cellular functions. Uh, and so what we observe in terms of osteocytoma in, the, in, in uh, the clinical presentation of uTROP1 in tumors is that when you see high levels of uTROP1 here in the line in blue, uh, compared to patients that have low levels of uTROP1 at the time of diagnosis, then there's a direct uh, negative correlation of uh, with patient survival. Basically, having high levels of uTROP1 uh, is predictive of poor outcome uh, in the patients at the time of diagnosis. So we seek out to see exactly what was uTROP1 doing. Uh, and one of the very first things that uh, surprised us was that while we had been studying uTROP1 and we were curious about uTROP1 in um, respect with cancers that mutate RB1, what we identified as, you know, this uh, 143B, SJS1, SAUS2, U2OS, these are all osteosarcoma uh, cell lines uh, that we commonly used in in a laboratory setting, uh, and missing kind of stem cells like normal cells uh, that that give rise to uh, bone uh, tissue, and you can see that regardless, all of this, this have very uh, this four cell lines really uh, depict the genetic heteronicity that we see in osteosarcoma patients. The only one that has a mutation RB is cells too. And so regardless of the background, all of these osteosarcoma lines have high levels of uTROF1 uh, and much higher than the normal highly dividing cells that form the tumor. And even when we look at uh, patient-derived xenografts, uh, so these are basically tumor patient tumors that now have been ground in mice, uh, you can see that, that there is high level of um, expression of uTROF1 protein uh, in all samples, pretty much. And so... Um, to really understand what is uTROP1 doing in the context of osteoarthritis sarcoma, we quite often use make use of uh, genetic engineer mouse models. Uh, this is particularly important uh, and useful in developing and studying uh, disease, uh, particularly when when we're talking about rare diseases, right? They have very limited resources in terms of patient samples uh, because, fortunately, there's not a lot of patients with osteoarthritis sarcoma. Uh, so being able to model what happens in human using mouse model really allow us to, to, to understand the biology. And so here you can see what I told you briefly about how mutations in OB are usually associated with a poor clinical prognosis in patients with a sarcoma. Uh, in a mouse model, if you, we have a mouse model where we only knock out P53 in bone tissue, you see that they all get osteosarcoma and they have a survival of over 100 weeks. But if we go and mutate RB in addition to P53, now you get this much more aggressive disease. Uh, now you start presenting metastasis and the overall survival gets halved by the presence of that mutation. Now, this tumor is also, so then the mouse model, just like we see with that in the human, they also have high levels of expression of future of one. And so, we just decided to, to ask the question, well, if uTROF1 is important in tumor development, in you know, well, what happens if we remove it out of the equation? Um, and so we genetically knocked out uTROF1, and you can see now here in, in red is the spreaded high expression. So these are tumors from the mouse, and the red dots are representing the high levels of uTROF1 uh, uh, RNA uh, present in these tumors. And when you knock out, you see that now that the tumors uh, don't have high level of expression that look like a wild type femur. Um, and now that this is a very busy slide, my apologies for this, but uh, so you can see here again, this is the black line that represented the tumors with just P53 mutations. 
you can you have again the red line representing those that had RB mutations that basically survive about half. Now we remove neutrof one, so we knock out neutrof one from the tumors uh, from the very beginning. Now you see that the blue line basically overlaps with the black, and so the beginning they start uh, behaving just the same as the p53 alone. Uh, so all that increased malignancy that was brought upon by the loss of RB1 is lost. Now at the end. Uh, there's definitely things that RB is doing that are not neutrophil dependent. At the end, you do see its separation of this line. We, get, we see significant increase in survival of the mice when we target neutrophil 1. And this is one of the first indications that maybe neutrophil 1, uh, it is critical to maintain uh, uh, tumor formation, to get the, the tumors to form more, more quickly. Um, but as I mentioned before, and we all know, Clinical outcomes in osteosarcoma are really associated with metastasis. And so what really here uh, caught our interest and our attention was in this mouse models that lost neutroph 1. Uh, quite intriguingly, we saw a significant decrease on the, the percentage of mice that formed metastasis. So the B53RB uh, mouse that we're using here as a reference, 52% of them uh, get distant metastasis, uh, predominantly to the lung, but also to the liver. Uh, we remove uterine one, only to, you know, roughly 23% of the mice developed metastasis. But most importantly, those that did present with metastasis, with those metastasis, at least to the lung, had significant reduced number of mice at the same time, uh, even though that these mice are leaving for much longer. So they have longer time to just go grow those meds and generate more meds, actually what we see is that they have fewer meds and they have fewer number of uh, nodule, met, uh, metastatic nodules into the lung, which if you think about the extrapolating the zone of the clinic, this is far more manageable than having uh, uh, nearly four times as many uh, meds to the lungs. And so um, what we see this, and when we look at metastasis for survival, in patient samples, and we saw that, you know, when we look, look back at the clinical data, we see that this is exactly true also in humans, where high levels of neutroph 1 uh, res result in uh, a lower probability of survival uh, with uh, metastatic free disease. Uh, so having low levels of neutroph 1 definitely is better than done. And so I'm going to spare you a lot of the uh, in vitro analysis that we've done using a human sample. Uh, to show you basically, and this is really like bring takes home the message of what we're thinking we can do with uterf one, and so we try to mimic what would happen in the clinic. So right now we don't have any molecules to target uterf one, and so what we've done is we have genetically modified the cells to then respond to something that we do have, uh, which is doxycycline. So we do use this inducible knockout systems. And so we've taken uh, human osteosarcoma cell lines, uh, introduced what we use CRISPR knockouts for our protein of interest, uterf one uh, in an inducible system. So we inject cells into the a mouse model, uh, directly into the, the femur of the mice. And uh, well, in this case, with the flank, at this one, basically one uh, side will get a control, so basically it would not alter uterf one, and the other one has the ability of decrease the levels of uterf one, and we let these tumors grow. Uh, and so once uh, the tumors have already settled and they're visible, then we introduce to the mouse doxycycline, and that doxycycline will now trigger the knockout of uterf one just on one side of the mouse and not on the other, and then we track them for two weeks and see what happens. And what happens is this, if you leave uterf one alone, and so you have high levels of uterf one, the tumors grow a lot quicker. And if you started looking also, and I'll highlight this uh, later, but we'll talk about it. Uh, you can see that they're basically a lot redder in color. So they were highly uh, vascularized. Whereas if uh, the, the side that could knock out uterf one or reduce the level of the uterf ones, you can see here, um, uh, you know, the, we don't completely eradicate uterf one, but significantly decreased the, the levels of uterf one. In the initial knockout side, you see 
smaller tumors and paler in color. We look at the statistics here, which overall basically significantly decreases the ability of the tumors to continue to grow beyond the initial size at which we started drugging. So instead of doxycycline, instead of the genetic manipulations, we basically, this sort of indicates that if we did have molecules that could target uterine, then therapeutically we could uh, result in a significant decrease in uh, tumor growth. But most importantly, while we repeat this experiment and using an octopic xenograph model, basically now we grow those osteosarcomas directly into the femur of the mice. And the, the, the beauty of this mouse model is that now we can actually do, uh, we can study metastatic disease, just spontaneous mets through the lungs. Uh, what we see is that uh, we have a significant number of mice that do not develop uh, mets, and that those that do develop mets then now have fewer metastatic nodules. They're basically this high dense uh, purple colored uh, bits there. And here's the uh, statistical representation where you see significant reduced number of lung uh, metastatic nodules when you knock out mutual form. Uh, and uh, in terms of survival, we significantly increase survival of the mice. Now, this is completely different than we normally uh, see in so the endpoint. So where we come with survival here, uh, in patients you usually will do either amputation or limb salvaging surgery. We don't do that sort of things in the mice. Uh, we basically call it an endpoint uh, in terms of survival when the tumor has grown beyond 10% of the body weight. Uh, so basically this ethical use of, of animals. Uh, but you can see that basically uh, there's a significant uh, increase in this doubling in survival while we're uh, halving the, the, the presence of, of METs and even the, the ability of the cells or the tumors to, to metastasize uh, to begin with. And I had also point out that if you look at either this flank tumors or even the orthotopic, so we think that the tumors that came and were injected directly into the femur, you may see this discoloration and this, in, in, uh, this uh, indication that there's less vascularization when you are targeting neutral one. Uh, and so we did some staining uh, to look at vasculature. And this is quite important because vasculature to the tumor, one, it uh, provides nutrients and allows them to grow. And also this becomes the channels for the tumors to metastasize. Uh, so less vasculature will make the, 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 the tumor uh, less likely to be able to break away uh, and disseminate to distant organs. And you can see here, uh, there's a lot less brown uh, stainings that are representative of, of, of uh, blood vessels uh, or in the knockout compared to the, the controls. And basically we see that there's a significant decrease in the number of vessels uh, in the tumors without uterus one than the ones that have high levels of uterus one. While though the formation, vasculature formation, in terms of the size of the vessel is not affected. This is quite important because uh, we want to spare the rest of the body uh, from uh, being able to, to develop normal vasculature. Uh, and we can do this also in vitro. Uh, I can see here that normally lung fibroblasts are really good at uh, uh, inducing blood um, uh, uh, vessels in, in, in ultra setting. Uh, you can see this sprouting of the cells uh, to form both vessels in, 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 a, in a dish. Uh, and also sarcoma cells normally have also, you know, not as great as lung fibroblasts, but they have this ability of, of, of guiding endothelial cells to form blood vessels. But if we knock out uterine from the sarcoma cells and their ability to form blood vessels, a significant decrease, and you can see in all the osteosarcoma uh, human osteosarcoma cell lines model, if we uh, knock out neutrophil, so basically we remove neutrophil from the equation, they're far less capable of uh, bringing in blood vessels to them uh, to generate nutrients. And so, you know, how exactly is neutrophil mediating this? Um, and this is, you know, try to then understand the pathways. It, uh, we do this a little bit, you know, one, because we are interested in the bio biology be behind that, but perhaps for you to understand the importance of this is also, it, you know, right here, right now, we have this interest in trying to uh, drive molecules to target neutral one, 
But if we understand the pathway and what, what else is happening uh, for UTRF 1's role, we can also identify potential other therapeutic targets um, that may result in the same outcome. So in this case, uh, in terms of UTRF 1's ability to induce endogenesis, uh, what identified is that if we look at the changes in gene expression that happen when we remove UTRF 1 from osteosarcomas, you see the cell migration is one of the the the, um, the cluster of genes that we identified, and it brings a lot of different uh, genes that are being altered. And one of them is the SEMR3E gene that we were able to confirm that in the absence of neutral one, SEMR3E protein levels uh, go up. So having high levels of SEMR3E is important. And, but this doesn't really tell us how it's directly uh, being regulated by UTRF-1 or how UTRF-1 is resulting and uh, dampening the levels of SEMA3E in order to aid tumor genesis. Uh, and this is where just reading a lot of literature comes in handy. And we were quite lucky because uh, basically the year that we were uh, looking at this was the year that, uh, so basically last year, there was this paper published that showed that UTRF-1 interacting with this other molecule, PP2A, was able to block uh, this AMPK. So this kinase is normally regulating uh, metabolism, uh, but it's also regulating things uh, epigenetically. So basically the expression of other genes uh, through epigenetic regulation and ultimately also cell proliferation. Uh, and so this basically linked to one AMPK and then uh, looking at AMPK-regulated uh, genes through that uh, epigenetic uh, control, we didn't identify that SEMA3E, the SEMA4E3E, is one of those targets. And so ultimately, we were able to validate that uh, when we target Mutraf1, that increase in SEMA3E then results, or sorry, when we target Mutraf1, uh, the low levels of each of one then increase phosphorylation or activation of NDK, and that will then result in uh, increased levels of SEMA3E. And we can see here that if we uh, get rid of SEMA3E, then the spreadability of the cells, of those circumference cells to induce uh, sprouting is rest restored, uh, which is a bad thing. So we want to make sure to we preserve uh, some three E levels. So, a very long story short, UHRF uh, one is capable. So, high levels of UHRF one, which is not good for osteosarcoma, will normally be blocking the activation of MPK, and then that will result to lower levels of SEMA three E. So, maybe might be ways of I think there was will be induction of SEMA three E that we want here, and this blocks angiogenesis, which is uh, a good thing. I didn't talk about this today because I, I talked about this other side of things uh, during the factor meeting a few years ago, uh, but this was published uh, last year. So if you're interested, all the data is there. Uh, but we have also identified that UTRF1 through the expression of exosomes, and we try to understand exactly how uh, this is part of what we're doing now, uh, it's in, induces or secretes uh, plasminogen activated uh, urokinase or UPA for short, and UPA can also induce uh, migration and invasion in order to aid the metastasis. Now, one of the advantages of UPA and that could be exploited clinically is that uh, we have tested amyloride, and amyloride uses an antidiuretic or as a diuretic, uh, so it, it, you know, it's commonly used in the clinic. Uh, we have using that those molecules, those inhibitors of UPA uh, significantly affect uh, the metastatic potential of osteosarcoma cells. Uh, and there's other drugs that could be used um, that have not used in the clinic, but at least there are inhibitors already developed that could block this, uh, uh, either the production of the exosomes or the incorporation of the exosomes in, or the signaling through exosomes in the tumors that could ultimately also result uh, in a decrease uh, migration and invasion that can have um, uh, effects in decreasing metastasis uh, in UTRF1. Uh, and as well as showing that UTRF1 um, is affecting proliferation 
not only of the primary tumor, but what we see is that uh, when we target uterus one, also the long meds continue to uh, divide a lot slower. Um, and so we are convinced that uterus one, uh, assuming that there are not systemic toxicities associated with targeting uterus one, uh, we think that uterus one is uh, a very attractive new therapeutic target uh, for the treatment of uterus one. So if we still have time, I can just basically tell you about where are we going now, uh, basically. Oh, can we definitely have time for that. But to, can I just ask you a question on that last sure. one? So if you're able to, to, let's say, use the amylaride on the on that kind of right here inside that, mm -hmm. does that affect what happens on the left-hand side with the AMPK and the CMO3? No, it wouldn't. Yeah, so you would only, so this is what within uterus one, if, if at all possible, if you if targeting uterus one results to not be toxic for other um, tissue developments, because this is the other thing that we have to keep in mind with uh, adolescents and young adults and, and, and infants when we think about this in, in the setting of retinoblastoma, is that you're still developing and you still, you know, you're normal. Uh, we want to make sure that the quality of life is not affected by altering um, tissue development elsewhere. Um, it, it will seem like it's, it shouldn't be uh, too toxic, but until we, until we have the molecules and to actually do these experiments, we cannot really tell. Um, but yeah, so I think that the best target for therapeutic intervention will be uterus one because then you affect proliferation, you affect angiogenesis, you affect migration and invasion, ultimately resulting in decreased tumor growth and decreased tumor metastasis. Now, if we cannot get away with that, then targeting any of these things could, you know, make the tumor less fit to metastasize. Thank you. So, um, so what are we doing in terms of like, trying to target uterus one directly? And I showed you briefly before uh, this picture that basically um, is an schematic of the uterus one protein. So. I mentioned there is an E3 ubiquitin, uh, a ring-fingered ubiquitin ligase. Uh, it also has this SRA domain that is involved in uh, DNA recognition uh, and 2 BDA DNA uh, or maintenance of DNA methylation. Got a PhD, TTE, UVL. So this got five different domains that were through which it can do different functions, interacting with different proteins. So it's quite complex, um, and so. Our thoughts of how to minimize potential toxicities is if we can really pinpoint as which of these domains is driving this protomerogenic uh, uh, roles, then maybe we can target just a specific function and spare the rest so that you know it, the normal function, the rest of the normal functions of Beatrix one can still occur. And so to do this, we first have started uh, trying to uh, identify which are the critical domains by mutating them. Um, and the beauty of uterus one, or not the beauty of uterus one, but in terms of well, it's overexpression. If we overexpress it in these normal cells that then give rise to bone tumor, they already start showing this pretumorogenic effects. So you don't really have to study this in the concept of cancer to start seeing it's effective. Even though we have also uh, find found uh, similar effects in anastosarcoma. If you overexpress uterus one, you see this increase in migration uh, that we saw in anastosarcoma cell. And now we mutate each one of these domains. We have already identified that it's a UVL, uh, so this produsomal pathway uh, in both domain that will no longer be able to increase metastasis. And so that's quite interesting. Um, and then there's TTD domain. So basically, we could scatter this E3 or ligase and everything else that is technically involved in maintenance of DNA methylation, uh, and then just focus on targeting this two uh, domains here in, in hopes that then that would result in altered uh, metastatic potential. I see that's sort of where we're going into for targeted therapeutics. Um, then to try to... so. This part of here, and it has particular complexity because it's it's blocking interactions with other proteins. And as scientists, our ability to block protein-protein interactions has not been too great. 
uh, we're really good at inhibiting activities, uh, which would have been this ring domain. Um, but there have been new, there's advances on, on how to potentially, uh, very specifically alter, uh, things that are happening at the surface of protein. And I'm not going to get too much because this is a very complex event, uh, for myself, this is where uh, collaborating with other individuals comes super handy. Uh, so I'm, I have collaborated here at UCI and the, uh, Andre Luptek. And the Luptek lab does, uh, aptamer evolution, which basically is antibodies made out of nucleic acids. They can use either single strand RNA or DNA. Uh, and this is just basically random sequences that then will fold. Uh, there's no real way of predicting how they're going to fold, but then they can interact with, uh, proteins. And so what we've been doing is just basically starting with, uh, a screening of trillions of, um, aftermers and then started doing, um, the selection of which ones are binding specifically to each one of those domains of future of one. And we've finally identified, uh, some direct key hits for each one of those domains. And so since we now know that, uh, that UVL and TTD domains, maybe the most important ones will start, uh, validation on, on that area. Um, but either those optimers in the future, when we advance our, our, our ability to get these things into the cell, they could serve as potential therapeutics, or we can tap them with, uh, fluorophores and try to use them to screen for molecules to do competition experiments. Um, to make basically the, the development of aftermers as tools could streamline and simplify your ability to screen for molecules that would target uterus one in the way that, that we want. Uh, and there's, I, I mentioned that the RB pathways, so what we, we see here in terms of the benefits of targeting uterus one, we're independent in a way or not you have mutations in RB. There are other ways that tumors can inactivate the RB pathway. And, and one of those, those ways is through amplification of uh, cycling dependent kinase four and six. And for CDK4, the R inhibitors are already in clinic, are public lipid, right? Used uh, for many different types of cancer. And there's actually a clinical trial that has been opened for uh, advanced sarcomas, including osteosarcoma. And we were kind of curious where to, to determine whether polvociclib in the context of CDK4 amplified uh, osteosarcomas, whether it will target uterus one and will result in this uh, therapeutic benefit. And what we're seeing is that, you know, polvociclib within 24 hours is very good at decreasing the levels of uterus one and specifically acting through pre preserving this repressed state so that it blocks the production of future form. Um, and then what we see here is that, um, when you treat with bubblesiclip, then you sort of see a significant de decrease in cell migration. Um, but if we use the knockouts, so basically those sarcoma cell lines that do not have future one, then bubblesiclip does nothing, which means that the reduction of migration that is uh, activated by um, or the blocking of, mi or, of migration by publicyclic is uterine dependent. Um, and now this was done in the SJSA1 cell line, which has CDK4 amplification. Uh, we repeated this in all of the other lines. And this would also, so publicyclic would only work in osteosarcomas that have amplification of CDK4. Um, so as my prediction is that probably we will see some interesting outcomes, uh, for those clinical trials that are currently in phase two incorporating, uh, possible, possible to these patients. Um, uh, so that, that, that is definitely, uh, an therapeutic opportunity to decrease your form and improve outcomes in patients that is available right now. Um, and then the other approach that we were using, and this may, uh, move faster through the pipeline is taking advantage of, um, the endogenous degradation systems that exist in the cell. I've been talking about how RB and RB pathway and CDK4, those are all involved. So this pathway here, uh, it's involved in the production of future of one. 
But within the cell, there's also pathways that are involved in decreasing the levels of, of, of protein. Right? So there's a, the making and then there's also the breaking. And when it comes to breaking down uterf one um, the breakdown of uterf one happens through a process that's called polyubiquitination. So ubiquitination of uterf one will then target this protein for degradation through the protosome. And this will normally be activated in the cell, but the cell also has the ability to block the degradation of proteins. And the blocker of the degradation for uterf one is a protein called a USB cell, a deubiquitinase. Basically, USB cell will remove the ubiquitin tags and will prevent uterf one to be degraded. But there's already inhibitors that have been developed to block USB cell. Uh, not in the context of osteosarcoma, but they've been developed in the context of tumors that frequently uh, uh, have inactivation of P53 through routes that do not involve mutating the protein. Um, and so this has been developed as a mechanism of maintaining P53 levels high in, in, in cancers in order to trigger them uh, for cell death. Um, but well, there have been some evidence showing that maybe they would also work in P53 null tumors, like in osteosarcoma. And so we wanted to see whether blocking USB7 will then result in blocking and uh, in, in allowing uterf one to get degraded uh, through the protosome. And so I don't have a lot of exper experiments done in osteosarcoma to show you, but you know, just like basically expand your a little bit of the horizons that there are things that we can test in other cancers and then repurpose them and bring them back into sarcoma. And so we've done the experiment of testing whether when we knock out USB7, and you can see now the loss of, so this is the, this is in triple negative breast cancer. The clinical presentation of uh, triple negative breast cancer is quite similar to sarcoma. You have loss of 53 you have frequent mutations of RB1, uh, and they have high levels of uterf one so this is why we use this um, tumors. And there's a lot more patients with triple nervous cancer. So we can develop things and drive them to the clinic, get them approved if they work, and then repurpose them and bring them back into uh, being used for oxycircular patients. So you see high levels of uterf one you see the presence of USB7, and we knock out USB7. Now you see the decrease of uterf one uh, And now if we look at mouse models of the disease, uh, using this USB7 knockouts, you see that now these tumors barely even grow compared to the controls. And most importantly, triple nerve risk cancer is also super metastatic. You see, uh, in these mouse models, you see liver, lymph node, brain, and lung metastasis. And when we target USB7, you don't see distant METs. You only see uh, a very low percentage of uh, regional METs into the lymph nodes. Um, so basically, similar to what we have seen with neutral one, targeting USB7 significantly reduces metastatic potential. Uh, so this is using genetic inhibition of USB7. And so then we have started now, and this is spreadsheet of the oven. This was, we got these results earlier this week. Um, what, Tuesday was when my grad student gave me this. Um, but we've done a, a short uh, preclinical trial using the inhibitor uh, of USB sound, it's called FT671, very small numbers, very spring-sync drugs, so we just wanted to see whether this will work or not. And you can see now, basically, we inject the, the tumors, allow the tumors to form. Once the tumors have uh, reached a certain size, then we start drugging either with the vehicle as placebo control or with the drug. And now you can see that by the end of the 21 days that we tested this, there's a significant decrease in the ability of the cells to uh, uh, to grow the tumors, and there's no toxicities associated. Uh, look at as you can see by the change in the body weight. We've also done uh, blood counts, um, and so the, so there's no toxicity. So this becomes uh, something quite interesting to indirectly target uterf uh, one through uh, inhibiting the deubiquitinase that pre, uh, prevents uterf one degradation. Uh, and so with that, basically I just want to emphasize uh, this is work that is not necessarily done by myself, but by my team of fantastic individuals. Um, this last freshman of the Alban work was done by my grad student, Ashley Kim, um, 
but also everyone has contributed in some way, directly and indirectly, to the work. But was most of the work in Osteosarcoma was mainly driven by uh, my grad student, a former grad student here, uh, Stephanie Wu, who's now a postdoc at St. Jude. Uh, now, with that, I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thanks so much, Dr. Benavente. I think we do have a, a few questions from the audience that uh, Vicky and Walker were going to take. Yeah, I have one question to start. Is there a drug in development to directly target the UHR form? Oh. To, no. So our, to our knowledge, not yet. Um, it is, we, we need to really understand uh, so I know that there's, there have been different groups that identifying colon cancer, uh, that the SRA domain would be the critical one to be uh, going after. Um, they might be there. There's, there's nothing that has been published. Uh, they might be in the process of developing inhibitors for uterf one and into particularly that domain. Um, but yeah, as of now, um, there's nothing, um, that it, it's uh, in development that is public knowledge. Thank you. The, uh, the next question, I'm hoping I pronounced this correctly. Um, do you think there may be a role for maintenance paldocitlib to decrease the risk of relapse? So can you repeat the question? Is it I can say the maintenance of what? The palbocilib. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so do you think there may be a role for it in maintenance to decrease the risk of relapse? I think that they. So for the CDK4 amplified tumors. Uh, I, th I think that it, it might be of interest uh, to look into public support. Um, if you don't have CDK or amplification, then the mechanism that is resulting in high levels of uterf one might be different, and therefore you may not necessarily affect. Uh, but it might be. Um, so in any in any osteosarcoma where there is either amplification of CDK4 or, or high or are not RB1 mutant, but have high levels of UTRF1, I think that Pulbociclev is a very attractive uh, option that it that we have available at this moment. All right, and have VEGF inhibitors been explored in osteosarcoma? So we're asked. Um. That's the new question. I do not know. Yeah, so for those of the know, it's a VEGF, uh, uh, it's basically it's a vascular epithelial growth factor. So they are, it aids in the in the growth of, um, of blood vessels that will be feeding into sister color. I have not seen that as a therapeutic application. Uh, Dr. Benavente, I had a couple yes. of questions about that last slide you were showing us about potentially blocking, um, uh, inhibiting uh, USP7, uh -huh. kind of blocking the degradation of of UF, UR, F, UR, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and so is that? I mean, I know ideally you would just inhibit uh, UHRF1, but I'm wondering if you can possibly do a head-to-head -head comparison. I'm just curious how blocking. USP seven, how that compares to blocking? Your well, so yeah, that would be a great question. Um, we we haven't done it. Uh, we are in the process of doing this in osteosarcoma. We have done it in the triple net breast cancer background. Uh, and much to our surprise, USP seven. So we, when we do the experiments in vitro, UTRF one is a far superior target than USP seven. When we move into the mouse, which is I think it's a lot more clinically relevant. USP silent is amazing. So there might be uh, definitely things that USP7 is doing controlling beyond UTRF1 that are quite beneficial for the tumor. And so targeting USP7, uh, it's better. Um, and so I show you that uh, that uh, 
tumor growth with the knockout that basically is flatlined. The tumors barely even grew. Uh, when we knock out GHRF1, they do grow a lot. I mean, they grow significantly more than the USB7. They not, don't grow as much as the vector control. Um, and yeah, so USB starting and USB7 was a lot better at decreasing um, tumor growth and uh, decreasing the rate of metastasis, which is why we're now wanting to go re repeat this in osteosarcoma to determine whether this would also hold true in an osteosarcoma model because uh, we have done the experiments in vitro and in vitro, it seemed like vitro one was better, but here uh, in vivo, we definitely have to do the in vivo experiments um, and they're in the, in the process. Yeah. Is there a USB-7 inhibitor in development? There are, I, that's a great question. So there's there's a lot of very good inhibitors out there. They're highly selective. Uh, if you look at them, they're phenomenal on paper. And the big question that I have and my collaborators have is why they have not moved into the clinic. Um, so my idea is, is that they haven't really identified the best tumors to move things forward. Um, and some of the people fear that they have been toxicity, which is why we wanted to like make sure that run that 21 day trial and, and see what were the toxicities that we observed. Uh, we, we didn't see any toxicities. Um, now they have been developed in the context of trying to reactivate P53. So it could be that the tumors that were chosen to first run trials, uh, they didn't work so great and the concentration that which needed to be used was much higher and that we're being able to get away with a lot less uh, dosing uh, and that may be less toxic. Um, but yeah, that's something that puzzles me as to why they have not been developed. We, we have not been behind the use of these drugs. Uh, we just basically are repurposing them. Um, but yeah, them. And I'm not hopeful. And you mentioned some other cancers. I mean, I think it is such a great to be able to study this in cancers where there's just also more patients, right? So there's, um, and so you had mentioned the study in breast cancer. What are other cancers where you do see this high expression of UHFR1? UHFR1. So the other one that we have personally been looking and going after is small cell lung cancer. Yeah, there's small cell lung cancer. It also has, um, so there the, the the opportunity to drag things into the clinic is that survival rates are 7%. Uh, so they're very aggressive tumors. Um, it aff afflicts people at a much later age. So we're talking about patients that are over 75 years old. Um, so being able to push clinical trials, um, uh, much larger population, uh, much more tractable to, to try to, to test for toxicities and such. Um, but we see similar. So with cell cancer, where we know how to do one on the mouse models, with exactly the same genetic presentation of the sarcoma, um, yeah, we see doubling of survival. Um, so we, 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 I think we have definitely identified adult cancers that were great for testing. If we come up with inhibitors, um, that will be great settings to test uh, um, their use in the clinic. And if they work, then bring them back to the chocolate cancers. Thank you so much, Dr. Benevente. Wonderful presentation. Really appreciate you on today. Um, thank you for joining us on Osteobites and for making it better for sarcoma patients. Um, more information on this and all Osteobites can be found on YouTube, on our website at mibagents.org, and also at your favorite podcast place. And next week, instead of osteobites, we're co-hosting a webinar with our friends at the Raleigh Foundation and several other pediatric cancer foundations about funding opportunities from the Department of Defense Medical Research Program for Pediatric and AYA Cancers. This webinar is open to scientists and researchers, and DOD Program Manager Dr. Donna Kimbark will lead a webinar on best practices and tips for applying for the Department of Defense Peer-Reviewed Cancer Research Program. Um, last year in 2022, 56 million in funding was awarded uh, 44 awards were given for nine specific cancers so great funding opportunity and that webinar will take place thursday april 6th so next thursday at 12 eastern so a slightly different time from our normal osteobites 
Um, and to register for the webinar, um, please email amy at rallyfoundation.org and I put that email in the chat. Um, you can find our Osterbite flight up for the next few months on our website. And if you have any ideas for future topics you'd like to hear about, please feel free to email us at events at mivagents.org. Thanks again, Dr. Benavente, Walker, and Vicki for spending an hour with us today and to everyone else um, for joining us. And we hope to see you next Thursday at the DOD webinar.